0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Femister, a a research associate at Newcastle University. He has previously held postdoctoral positions in history at what was then called NUI Galway, and now the University of Galway, at the University of Oxford, and at Edinburgh's Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. His new book, which we're going to talk about today, is called Land and Liberalism, Henry George and the Irish Land War, and is out now with Cambridge University Press. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So I might just jump right in and ask who exactly was Henry George, because he's relatively well known, I think, by economic historians in the US, but perhaps not well known outside of that.
2: Well, yeah, I think you're spot on about that. He's a kind of uh, understudied figure. That's what I say in the book. Um, I think that is true for historians, particularly in this period. He often gets a mention, I find, in books, but can be quite brief. Um, so I suppose, you know, he's he's an interesting figure because um, his early life is, is quite unexceptional. You know, he comes from a religious family in Philadelphia. He travels the world a little bit. He tries to work out what his purpose is. He eventually finds himself involved in kind of crusading journalism, um, but it's it's not kind of evident that he's got some sort of uh, passion right from the beginning of his life. And then in the 1870s, he's working for the Sacramento Bee in California, and he kind of stumbles across through, through kind of political campaigning uh, around municipal issues in California he kind of comes across the land issue and decides that this is really the key to understanding all these other problems that he's seeing developing in California, particularly with the coming of the railroads and the kind of speculative land rush there. Um, so he starts writing things on the on the land question, um, but it's really the publication of his book. So Progress and Poverty is 1879. And that um really rather rapidly catapults him into the political mainstream. And by the by the mid-1880s, he's he's really an international figure. Um, so the central idea in in the book is that um Lange is basically the common property of all. And the scheme that George comes up with as a way to realize this is um something called he calls the single tax. So this is kind of um uh, you know, taxing land values to their full extent as the only tax and then using that to cover all uh, government revenues. Um, so it sounds quite dry in that sense, but the book is anything but that because he he develops this whole historical scheme to to go behind it. Um, and it's really an argument about natural rights. So the central argument is that, you know, humans can't live without land. Uh, therefore, we all have a right to uh, benefit from um working the land and from the, the profits of land, that um, this this land itself is a, is a collective resource that needs to be um, uh, uh, justly shared. So um, really that's kind of how he becomes, his central idea is how he becomes very popular, but the international significance is remarkable. So he has this kind of efflorescence in the 1880s where uh, he travels the world, we, we can talk about Ireland in a minute, but Um, It's not just Ireland at all. It's you know across the United States, across Britain, across Europe. Um, He makes all these connections. He has all his influence across the world. And then, you know, uh, by the end of the 1880s, already he's starting to look like a kind of a figure, almost a a kind of archaic figure already. You know, someone from the past. The ideas have already overtaken him in some sense, and that. That's, that's, uh, that's something that you get across the political spectrum. You find even conservatives are calling him, you know, archaic at that point, you know. So there's something interesting about what George is saying and uh, what people think of as modernity, right? That's also going on there as well. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's his kind of... I mean, he, has, he also has, from a political perspective, you know, he has a, um, a campaign for mayor of New York in 1886, which is very significant um, in terms of drawing together all these disparate elements of, of the Labour Party in the US. So we have like socialist elements and radical Republican elements, and they all join together, but it's a very brief lived thing. So his failure is kind of alongside the Haymarket crisis of the same year is kind of, you know, uh, a watershed for this kind of um, rather broad church movement uh, things start splintering off from then. So <clears throat> that's quite significant also in George's political trajectory, because after that, um, it seems like he's lost a lot of momentum for his ideas, um, and uh, I don't think he's ever able to kind of replicate that international success anyway.
1: So when we, when we think about him then, I mean, he's both thematically in terms of this obsession with, with the land question, and then also the fact that he's in places like Philadelphia and New York and California it's relatively easy to imagine how he could have then ended up having an interest in Ireland, but could you maybe piece that together a bit more about like how does he end up connecting with with radical agrarianism in Ireland and what are his views on Ireland and things like that?
2: Well, as I mean, so there's a kind of um, tentative steps in the early 1870s. So uh, the Sacramento Bee is sort of an Irish American paper, so he is involved touching on Irish issues as well um, in the early 1870s. <clears throat> so they do kind of form in tandem his his views on the land question and uh, his understanding of the situation in Ireland. But really the, the, the key moment is, um, you know, uh, his relationship with Patrick Ford, who's the editor of the Irish World in New York. And that is a very fruitful relationship. So the newspaper itself starts... Um, I mean, initially, he's not that positive, but starts kind of promoting George's book and sees the connection. I think Ford sees the connection between um, promoting George's ideas in the US and also supporting the land agitation in Ireland. So he can see that those two things very, very clearly. And what he does is he invites George to be a a special correspondent for the newspaper in Ireland, Uh, sends George to Ireland during the land war. And the, the purpose of this is twofold. One is kind of um, to provide, um, you know, direct, corresponding from Ireland that's going to give the Irish World newspaper readers, you know, an insight into what's going on. But it's also for George to kind of look around and connect what's going on in Ireland with his own ideas. So um, that's that's very productive for George. And um, the other thing to say there is that Ford uh, facilitates the relationship between George and Michael Davitt, which is also very very significant now david comes to george kind of independently in that sense though he claims to have read progress and poverty already and already been a fan of george's ideas and so there's a kind of meeting of minds there they i would say it goes beyond kind of um political convenience i think both of them are in agreement with each other and do see a kind of deep synergy in, in how they see the land question um but that's very valuable for george as well because what he does is he he publishes like a, a shortened version of uh, Progress and Poverty called um, the Irish Land Question. Um, and that kind of, you know, again, he's making these connections with radical publishers with people like John Ferguson, people who are involved in the land war. Um, and I would say, you know, on that kind of uh, the radical end of the land league, the more progressive end of the land league, George is, you know, a key, a key figure there. So, um, it's it's productive for both parties, I think, in that sense. But I, I wouldn't also characterize it as um, just a convenience thing. I mean, I think there is ideological connections there as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, see, as you say in the book, Henry George believed the land war was about to become something bigger. I think he says than either the French or the American revolutions. So, I, I mean, that was a, a striking claim to make. And I thought, um, wh- why would he have believed that, and why was he wrong?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing to say about Henry George is he's he's prone to bombast, and over-exaggeration and getting carried away with things. That's that's one aspect. The other thing to say is that it was really what he thought the land war represented. And he, he wasn't the only one to kind of, I mean, that's a very, like you say, a very grand claim. But he wasn't the only one to make those kind of connections between what was going on in Ireland in the 1880s and uh, things that, you know, the the political revolutions of the late 18th century as kind of mo- moments of emancipation. So the idea was, you know, that the French and American revolutions had been kind of political emancipation, that the U S had seen legal emancipation in the 1860s. And this was going to be the final piece of the puzzle. It's going to be economic emancipation. So, that was kind of where the connections were, you know, it was in reclaiming this older uh, Republican vision of freedom, where liberty and equality could sit together comfortably, that there didn't need to be a tension or a management between the two of those. So I think that's where I saw the land war. This was kind of solving uh, a longer contradiction that really was not just to do with Ireland, it was a was a kind of um, really a universal thing, um, between you know how, how you manage political power in relation to economic disparity and how you equalise those things. Um, and that, for George, it just seemed like there'd been a long progressive arc and that I think he just felt like his book was the panacea. He'd identified the problem. And lo and behold, just as he's done this, at the same time, Ireland is breaking out into agrarian revolt. Um, Ireland is not unique for George, it's just like the most egregious example of what is more broadly going on everywhere in the U S and Britain and Europe, much, much, much more broadly. So, um, yeah, in that sense, I think he does have not justification to, to make that claim, but there is sort of a logical component behind it. You know, there's, there's a theoretical element about, um, finally resolving this, uh, contradiction about, about the land question about ownership, um, and doing so in a liberal fashion i suppose um in a, in in the same kind of mental universe that inspired those revolutions in the late 18th century so that's the connection he's making as for why it didn't pan out well i mean <laughs> it wasn't what he thought it was um that's one thing to say um you know like i think i think this is the case with with a lot of um the radicals in the us you know that they're, they're projecting to a to a large degree um it's not entirely invented because there's a symbiosis and a and a kind of um, reciprocity that's going on between the ideas that the American Irish American radicals are thinking about and then what's going on in Ireland. Obviously, the Irish World newspaper is incredibly well read in Ireland itself, so there's a kind of back and forth. It's not it's not one sided projection, um, but at the same time, yeah, he he wanted to see it like that, uh, obviously, and. Um, things on the ground were a little bit more complicated in Ireland. I think that's fair to say.
1: Sure. So, so your book, as you're kind of maybe alluding to here, it's not just a book about the land war, about Henry George. It's, it's tapping into all these bigger questions about, about 19th century politics, about what is republicanism in the 19th century? What does liberty or equality, what do these things mean? And at, at an early point in the book, you say that Victorians were divided politically between individualism and, and collectivism, but that the debates over land over the land question confound this divide so can you explain what you meant by that or or why you think the land question confounds that divide and then how does this thing called the land question fit into the larger framework of, of Victorian british politics
2: well what's interesting about that is that you know that um you know i i'm thinking now like of a of a correspondent of the irish world saying you know i'm an individualist and i am a socialist because, you know, those two things have to exist together. And there was this idea, I suppose, that um, the land question was a way of uniting those, that it was a kind of anarchic socialism that rejected, I suppose, what would have been referred to as German or continental socialism, the idea that, you know, we have to subsume ourselves within a larger polity. Um, they would have seen this as a, as a, a way of combining egalitarianism with uh, individual rights. And the, the reason why the land question in particular demands that is the same reason why um, conservatives and liberals and socialists saw it as archaic, um, was that it seemed to demand this kind of individual... Was- so Malcolm Chase has a good line on this, actually. The, the historian of Chartism, obviously expert on the land question, he calls it the, the Janus-headed face of agrarian radicalism. So at the same time as kind of um, demanding rights to the land and possessive rights to the land. It's also saying that land is communally owned. So in the, that's the sense in which it kind of crosses over because land is obviously a finite thing. So if you're claiming that there's a, a universal individual right to land, then you're also claiming that there's a restriction and a limitation on how far those rights can extend. So it's a kind of um, a way of projecting individualism into a kind of egalitarian uh, communitarianism at the same time and sitting those two things together and the way the way that um this often kind of unevenly confronts victorian politics is that you know early into the 20th century the land question becomes basically for some conservatives a bulwark against radical socialism and later communism you know that having a bourgeois um owners and and proprietors on the land is a way of restraining um, socialist demands, basically. Um, And I think uh, partly that's what does for George in the 1890s as well. Um, So yeah, it seems to fit awkwardly. I mean, you you know, when you think about the liberal arguments against land redistribution, the way they take shape is to say, well, there's no reason to redistribute land um, because... Uh, rights in land are just like the same as rights in any other form of property. And ultimately, the state is the, the, the backstop and the justification for all of them. Um, so we don't need to do anything specific with land. We just need to make sure that all social relations, all forms of property are better managed. Right. So, I mean, they look at these demands for the land as very, very backwards, very, very um, individualistic in that sense. And of course, for the other side of things, for the, the more conservative, aristocratic view of um, uh, absolute property rights, these are far too egalitarian because they're demanding that everybody has the same natural rights to the land They're not paying enough attention to pre-existing claims and vested interests in the land. So that's kind of what I mean by cutting across those, you know, for both those who were um, committed to individualism in the, in the 1880s people like Herbert Spencer, who's long given up his, his view about, um, uh, collective rights to the land. You know, this is a shocking, uh, far too, basically it's a, it's a form of communism, but of course the other side of things don't see it that way at all. They see it as a kind of very retrogressive step because it only focuses on land. It doesn't take into account how we manage all those other proprietorial relations in, in a state. So, um, that's kind of what I'm getting at with it kind of sitting awkwardly between those two, but, I think as a result of that, it does show us something interesting, especially because of its popularity. I mean, especially because there are all these, um, especially like artisans and lower middle class, upper working class people who find this a kind of really powerful um, e- kind of extrapolation and vindication of their their worldview and their, their own political economy. So I think that's really interesting that they there is sort of a... a a gap there that George is filling um, and that allows the land war to take on this international residence, you know, for people who are not Irish or people who aren't involved directly in the conflict. Um, So that's what I find so interesting about the land question in that period in particular. I don't know
0: about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Sure, sure. So
1: Your book has a chapter then on Catholicism and the land war. So what role does the Catholic Church play in all this? Are they also trying to mediate between individualism and collectivism? Or are they different goals?
2: Yes. um, I mean, that's a very interesting aspect to this. I mean, one thing that I try to bring out in that chapter is the is the significance of religious arguments for for George and for the, the, the land league in general? Um, because central to this is this sort of divine right to land, and that rests on a kind of vision of self-preservation and a um, and a human flourishing that's very kind of Thomist, you know. And you'll find in Ireland that um, priests pay, play a big role in articulating this particular vision, um, you know that. Probably the best example is um, Bishop Nulty's uh, letter on the land question. You know where he he articulates this in the same in the same language that you know human beings are particularly suited to a certain habitat. They need the land to survive, um, and so God made the land for everybody, and therefore everyone has a natural right to it. Um, and these are these are written into basically all the land league meetings you will have a priest saying something along those lines. Uh, And it's uh, George's uh, work itself is full of it as well. So there's, you know, I think uh, for contemporaries, it was very easy to dismiss George and to dismiss the land war in the same terms as being kind of moralistic uh, and being kind of religiously motivated. um, Not, and I suppose as a result of that, not taking, political economy and all these other things seriously because they were so devoted to a what was essentially a religious origins of their vision of why land should be owned uh, collectively. But I think the reverse of that is taking seriously how those, the sort of um, confluence of those arguments and why, I suppose, which is the other part of that chapter, why the Catholic Church had such an awkward relationship both with the Land League and with George. So I kind of look at that because you know, in the US, particularly in the US context, um, the Catholic Church is incredibly worried about George, more worried about George than it is about any other uh, socialist or left-leaning thinker, because they they see the others as, you know, there's, there's not as much popular resonance and connection with their own doctrine as there is with George. George is using religious arguments, and he's drawing them to very, very radical conclusions. And the archbishops are finding, you know, Uh, people writing to them and saying, why can't we be followers of Henry George? It seems perfectly in correspondence with the doctrines of the church. And, you know, they're kind of freaking out about this. And what I try to show in that chapter is their attempts to, um, uh, you know, kind of solve this problem intellectually, uh, fail, basically. Um, And that's that's a big issue for them. And the same goes in Ireland. Of course, there's other issues about um, the role of the church and the national question and exactly how much tentative support uh, can be given. And there's also the kind of, uh, you know, personal issue about um, the relationship of priests to their communities and the relationship of, um, you know, certain members of the clergy higher up to um, establishing their own authority in Ireland and in relationship to the British state. So that complicates matters in uh in terms of how the the church responds to the land question in Ireland, but at the same time um, what I try to show is that there's a huge amount of confluence of ideas between um, what the church is saying and um, and george's ideas and I suppose to to just bring that out more fully one of the the big kind of um, uh, you know, events in, in George's political arc is his relationship with Father Edmund, Edward McGlynn, who is an American priest, Irish-American priest, and um, who founds, who becomes incredibly popular in New York and particularly amongst Irish-Americans and is essentially a follower of George and has, um, you know, a, a contentious relationship with his, uh, his Archbishop, Cardinal um, Corrigan where McGlynn ends up getting excommunicated um, and the church is scrabbling around to kind of find a kind of proper justification for uh, excommunicating McGlynn um, and can't really do it. I mean, it's, it becomes a big problem and eventually he gets brought back into the into the fold and um, doesn't really have to apologise because uh, by then the Pope has released Rerum Novarum and there was enough leeway in that for McGlynn to say, look, You know, land is common property and there is enough in what's there that is doctrinally legitimate for me to agree with. And so it's interesting because then what we can see is, you know, the the land question, George and McGlynn, those kind of interactions through the kind of internal discussions in the church, shaping the direction of Catholicism and and not obviously not just in the US. uh, it's it's globally as well. So Um, it's really fascinating there because the problems that they're confronted with force a re-evaluation in that same sense of how we deal with, um, I suppose, what was called the social question, but really was driven by the land question, I suppose. That's my part of the argument in that chapter. I
1: mean, it's fascinating to think of this almost as like the the prehistory of that kind of social Catholicism that comes out of *Verum Novarum. Um, I I might maybe move to, to where your book fits into into Irish historiography in, in more recent years. I mean, there, there has been a kind of a push in general towards more trans, transnational and, and global studies of Irishness and of Irish history. Um, and your own book places the land war into this, at one point you say into the global context of the American Gilded Age, um, saying, uh, I think you say at one point that Ireland was semi-integrators is the phrase you use, into the Atlantic world. So how does the, how does the land war start to look different when you do things like this or when you look at it from this vantage point?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think what I'm trying to do there is is look more broadly. And, and, and with the semi-integrated comment, I mean, I'm really trying to frame um, the whole North Atlantic itself as, uh, as, as if you look at it as a whole, I, I, you would say you reshift where Ireland is located. You know, um, it's not in that sense an agrarian periphery. Um, to what's going on in Britain it is really a central node in a wider trans circulation of ideas and money and people and all these other things that are going on. Um, And I think you really have to take that perspective with the land war because, you know, this is, it's an international event. And I'm not just saying that in terms of the ideas as well. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's brought on by international competition it's shaped by global depressions. It's all these other things are not just confined to Ireland itself. Um, you know, and I think, as you say, you know, there has been a transnational turn in Irish history, and it does help us to move away from seeing the land war in that sense as a kind of just a precursor to, um, you know, the long Irish revolution, I suppose, the beginning of the more concerted attempt to, to win independence or home rule. Um And it does help us see it in a different light in that respect. I would say that the key point is that it allows us to take some of the ideas seriously, because I think looked at just from an Irish context, you're you're drawn, um, I think, as we were saying at the beginning, you're drawn particularly to see the failures of the land war, um, or at least it's incremental victories through British legislation. Um, And what I found looking at it in the kind of global context was that British legislation seemed to be, in many sense, a kind of um, a defeat for what the land war was was fighting for, um, or for what, in a global sense, those kind of visions were put on the land war. There's a tension there, isn't there? Because there's a tension within the land war itself. I mean, when you look at um, most of the historiography of the land war itself, the notion of paradox is really, is really a big issue. You know, how does this kind of... Um, ostensibly egalitarian moment uh, result in a class of owner-occupiers and um, the kind of exclusion from political life of people without land. And there's there's lots of uh, ways of framing the land war in that sense that make it look very confusing and confounding. And I would say that in a global context, some of that, not all of that, but some of that is cleared up a little bit. And it makes more sense as to why um, it's you know, there is this powerful egalitarian rhetoric being expressed during the land war. Um, And I think also, you know, it explains what is a a fundamental problem is why why the land war becomes so internationally significant, why it has such a resonance in the US, why you have, you know, New York Labour parties, you know, drawing on the same arguments that are being made in, in Ireland. You know, it's not just the diaspora, although that's obviously a big thing, it's not just the spread of um American communications, the fact that the that as I was saying before, the Irish world is being read in in Ireland. Um it's also to do with shared ideas. And I think the fact that we can resituate Ireland in this transatlantic radical nexus so we can see how Ireland fit into these ideas. Um, you know. In the British context, in the American context, and across the Atlantic, it does help to give a greater amount of perspective to what in Ireland is often seen as um, a much more limited and, um, you know, kind of difficult uh, fight for for a kind of limited set of rights over the land. You know, which is which is in a way it's a fair argument, and it's it's where things did kind of end up. But um, I do think the global perspective adds another dimension to this that's kind of been. Uh, underseen in some senses
1: Mm -hmm. so as you said at the start it's very easy for for economic history to be seen as terribly dull Uh, but as everything you're you're talking about here I think shows this is a book that that really taps into a whole lot of fascinating questions and and does it in a quite rich and and complicated way Um, so what are you working on next are you going to stay in economic history and intellectual history or do something totally different
2: uh, there's a few things. I mean, so one, one thing I'm working on now is boycotting. So um, that obviously features in the book. Uh, there's a, there's a, a section in chapter three on boycotting. And really the argument make, I'm making there is it's a kind of, um, it's a political action itself. It's expressing certain set of political ideas in its very activity. And those ideas are kind of correspondent with what's being said on the platform and some of the wider arguments around the land question. So really what I'm wanting to do is develop that. Um, You know, I've been working for a little while now on a project about the relationship between boycotting and democracy, which seems not only to have kind of contemporary resonances, um, but has such a powerful impact. I mean, it's very difficult, can be very difficult to separate out the impact that boycotting is having on kind of, Liberal frustrations and worries in the eighteen eighties and the impact of the land war itself, but I do think there's something very specific about boycotting as inducing these fears about mob rule, um, and uh, so I'm really curious to investigate that. That's essentially my my current concern, and um, wanting to kind of <laughs> it's been ongoing. Let's say that work, and uh, there's plenty more to be done, um, and beyond that. Um, I'm really interested in uh, the environmental dimensions. So it's something that I suppose the book touches on very tangentially. Um, You know, it is in its own way a kind of uh, environmental history of ideas. The land is the environment and the backdrop here for um, the political arguments that are put forward. But I suppose going into the future, what I want to do is kind of extend that out more broadly. So, you know, my research associate position at the moment is working on project about trees and woodlands in Britain and Ireland. Um, And I'm interested really on the kind of uh, the political resonances of that, the kind of the drawing of um, ecological and natural analogies into the political world, because that was such a significant thing for the radicalism that I study in the 19th century was, you know, the reason why we didn't need this overarching state or we could have egalitarianism and liberty at the same time was because, you know, there was a natural harmony in the world, right? This was visible to them. They saw it, they believed in it. So I'm wanting to draw out those connections a little bit more fully because I think, um, you know, it's, it's going to have some resonance as well for our current understanding of our relationship to a, to the natural world. So that's something I want to do in the future as well. But that, you know, one thing at a time, like I really need to get the boycotting project <laughs> nail down and then move on to the next thing, yeah.
1: All right, well, thanks so much for this wonderful conversation. Land and Liberalism, Henry George and the Irish Land War is out now. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for your
2: questions. That was great. Bye-bye.